You're listening to a special edition of Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. This is a special edition of Midori House showcasing the best of our print media show, The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis with me, Tom Edwards. Now, 2018 was the year of the World Cup, the Winter Olympics, and also the year when the sports presses flourished. Certainly, here on The Stack at least, we spoke to editors from some of the most varied and dynamic of sports. We'll start the show talking about Fallon's Angler, a fishing magazine that eschews, in its own words, the incessant barrage of tackle and tactics that characterises most titles on the topic. Instead, it focuses on long-form articles illustrating the richness of the angling lifestyle. Here's Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaking to Fallon's Angler's editor, Garrett Fallon. I actually first had the idea when I was about 18. It came from really an experience of uh, having fished with my father, who was, and I, he was a journalist, but also a devout trout fisherman. As I moved into design, I sort of wanted to produce something that was representative of the kind of love that I attached to the pastime. But then I sort of parked that as I went through my career, and it was about 2014 where I had an opportunity to make it happen. Um, I saw there was a bit of a gap in the market, maybe. You know, that's yet to be seen in in sort of many senses. But I just kind of went and did it without any, any sort of planning. I just produced it and waited to see what the world thought of it. And here we are, sort of nearly... Well, about three and a half years later on. Well, and it's clearly, uh, you know, doing well, as you say, issue 11, you know, after... uh, And who is the market? Of course, people who fish, but do do you (laughs) think... Because, you know, I I don't fish myself, but I'm quite interested. I was reading a lot of interesting articles, and I think this is something that I learned a few things as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting to ask who the market is, because actually we're continually finding it. I think that in many ways there's a sort of cultural, you know, zeitgeist uh, for people to sort of move away from more consumerist titles and something that's produced with a little bit of care and attention, a little bit more care and attention. And so with that in mind, there are obviously many anglers in the country, but we can't, all, we can't aim for all of them. But we can aim for the people in that group that, that like something away from the mainstream. Traditionally, that have been sort of slightly older anglers. But actually, we see that sort of cultural zeitgeist being, being sort of echoed in, in a younger population right now. So we're beginning to reach out to them. So we have readers from their 20s all the way up to 80s and occasionally beyond. I've read an article recently that in the world of fishing, you know, it's changing bit by bit because, as you say, before perhaps it was like older men, but now you have younger, you have more women as well doing it. Yeah, there are many more women. It's it's a really interesting point of view because, you know, it's it's quite difficult to actually get women to write for us in, in many ways, which is it's been a, been a challenge. Yeah, we have had women write for us. Uh, we're continually searching for, for women who want to sort of take part in it. I think there's a sort of movement towards kind of almost celebrity angling in, in sort of many senses. And I think women are doing particularly well in, in that area. That We're seeing a lot of it in television, but I don't know how representative that necessarily is of the women on the ground, you know, or by the river, so to speak. But we do, we, we, we have them in mind uh, and we'd like to do more. Before we talk about some of the stories, especially here in the issue 11 that I have it with me, what about the business model? I can see already that, you know, you guys offer a subscription, but do you sell new stands? How, how do you work out of this? Perhaps some advertising as well? From the very get-go, part of the inspiration behind producing something like this was being slightly fed up or kind of exhausted by the standard of the current angling magazines. And many of them are very advertising-focused, and as a result of very being very advertising-focused, they have 
sponsored anglers within them who, you know, when they're talking about catching a fish, they're talking about also the, the advertiser who sponsors them. So actually every single article is a sales pitch. I made the decision at the very beginning to not have any advertising in it and to try and sustain the model through subscriptions, through um, newsstand sales. So initially it was all subs. The business model is actually, it is under pressure to become sustainable, but actually it's supported by me to a certain extent. And over the over the years, the business plan is for it to start to pay for itself. Um, and we're kind of edging towards that. And newsstand sales are really interesting because we're, we're, we're beginning to get a greater purchase in the market. We've got a very exciting year ahead of us when a major distributor in the US want to bring us in there. And I think that might do great things for us. But also we're looking at other options here. Oh, and, and the magazine looks beautiful. That's why I asked about the new standards. Because I think, I think if I see something like this, I probably would be interesting to pick it up and, yeah, and, it's, and buy it, a copy. It, it's a really, really good point. Because quite often when you, because we, we sell subscriptions through our website, and it doesn't necessarily convey the true beauty of the product. And like when you pick up a magazine, you can smell it and you can touch it. It's obviously got a matte finish. It's quite... It's quite small in a sense. It's not A4. It's, it's significantly smaller than that. It's quite thick. The paper has a good stock. So when you open it, you really feel that actually there's a moment to pause. You can read it on the train. You can read it wherever you are. But actually, When you're fishing. When you're fishing, yeah. <laughs> actually, we, we get sent pictures from... We've had, we've had a, a people ice fishing in Canada who've sent us over some stuff and a guy fishing in the Seychelles who's sitting there in a boat reading Felon's Angler while fishing, I think, for Marlin or something. But uh, it's always quite exciting to see that. You're absolutely right. Nothing can convey the quality of it better than actually picking it up on a newsstand and seeing it for yourself. Well, and because I'm, I'm becoming a bit interested in fishing, thanks, thanks to you, in a way. Where is a good spot, for example, here in the UK? Well, you can be anywhere in the world. Yeah, you can be anywhere. To, for a beginner, can. let's say for a beginner. Well, for a beginner, I would go probably to the Wandle which is um, sort of southwest London, and it flows for, for about 15 miles, I think, through southwest London into the Thames. And you, actually, Old Father Thames, you can't really beat that. It's got plenty of fish in it further up. Got fish, actually, in central London, but, you know, it's, it might be quite difficult to catch. But further up, the, you know, as the river gets smaller, it gets a bit more fresh water in it, so you can catch them there. But the Wandle certainly is it's a genuine chalk stream within probably 30 minutes of here, and you can fly fish for it. You, know, you can catch trout there, quite big trout. You can get big gudgeon. You can get, I think there's about, there's more than 20 species been been caught in that one little tiny river. So I would go there. And it's interesting because I think fishing, again, I'm going to say, it's not only people that, you know, do it, but even on television, you see like shows like, I know it might be a, a bit, trashy but like, <laughs> like river monsters but i have to say i i i've 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 been fascinated by this since as a young child so and another thing that i like about Fallon's angler there's so many different stories i mean that you couldn't like how would you fill in a magazine about fishing but well for example i love that story about building a fishing vessel yes uh, on issue yes. 11 such an interesting story that's very true actually because um, a, a big thing that happened for Fallon's angler was after about issue three the photographer and writer nick fallowfield cooper came on board in a sort of more permanent position and he's now sort of essentially contributing picture editor for the magazine. And it was, he's had a huge effect on on the sort of look and feel of the photography. He, he deals with a lot of our contributors and helps them make sure that the kind of images are the right kind of quality for the mag. But he was the person who built the boat and he's got an interesting sensibility towards towards angling. It's very soulful for him. So it was a hell of a journey for him to, to build that boat using his grandfather's, you know, woodworking tools and sailing it on the River Lee and actually, or sailing it, I think, I think probably paddling it on the River Lee. Actually, there's another point. The River Lee is actually equally, that's a good river. That's on, you know, that's out East London. You can probably fish there too. Another good spot. Yeah, <laughs> a good spot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, when is the next issue coming 
notes. How, how often does it come? Um, we're, we, we do our best to make it quarterly. It's not always possible, but because it's, it's very organic. But we are doing four issues this year, and the next issue is in production right now, and we hope to get it to press by the end of January. Fantastic. And Gareth, a question that asks all editors, which other magazines do you read for inspiration? It doesn't need to be all about fishing, but... You know. No, it doesn't. Actually, I think the first magazine that really caught my attention was a magazine in the 1980s called Geo. And um, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but my father brought it home from work one day. We bought about eight copies, and, and that had a huge effect on me. Uh, the ones that I read regularly, National Geographic, I think, is, uh, is very important for me. Somebody who's interested in nature and a little bit more besides. But I'm, I'm very impressed with magazines like uh, Another Escape. Uh, there's another magazine called Ernest, which I think they've done a really tremendous job on, on those. Now on the programme, probably, dare I say certainly, the world's favourite sport, football. Well, not everywhere. The world's most powerful country, the United States, has historically had something of a lukewarm relationship with what they continue to insist on calling soccer. Thankfully, though, that's changing. The popularity of the sport stateside is growing year on year, and luckily for US footy fans, the country produces one of the very best magazines on the market. Howler began as a Kickstarter project back in 2012 and has gone on to garner critical acclaim and a loyal global following. Its founder and editor, George Qureshi, joined us in the studio to tell us more about Howler. It started with the premise that American soccer was a fragile thing and that it was time for us to be able to poke fun at ourselves a little bit and to explore it in a little more depth. And and, uh, and so, you know, we, we borrowed a name from your soccer culture, the Howler. You know, it's a, it's a terrible mistake, right? So it's borne out. We've been able to sort of examine American soccer, look at international soccer from an American point of view, which is mm. a, a specific thing. And it turns out because the game has history in, in, the, in the States, but not such entrenched tribal history, people are curious about soccer everywhere and it's a real blessing for us because we get to explore soccer everywhere exactly and that, just on that american experience because it struck me that there's been a kind of i guess from from the outside a sort of a europeanizing of some of the sensibilities around the game in the states some of those club dynamics is that just because i'm looking to see that because that's what i'm familiar with or do you think that has happened a bit there's a really interesting tension in america in the united states between uh, influences from from europe and South America. Mm. So the most popular league in the United States to watch on TV is actually Liga MX, the Mexican league. You have these cultures that don't mix all that often, but are starting to in certain ways, interesting ways in the United States. And if we can figure out how to harness those two things, we'll be a lot better for it. Right now we're seeing, you know, you see a lot of supporters groups sort of consciously aping English fan groups or, mm. or you know, the, some of the, the tropes of an ultra group without... The, well, I was going to say you yeah. have ultras and uh-huh. you have the kind of chanting motifs and a lot of these things. Does it feel ersatz to someone who knows the global game well like you do? Do you sort of, do you like to see that? It's fun, I yeah, guess. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, it, I like it insofar as it provides an atmosphere for the matches, right? Mm. So for so long, it was it was quiet. It was, you know, that gives fans like a framework for expressing themselves and, and you know, and, and visually as well with TIFO and these displays they put out before the games. It's still relatively new. MLS is what, in its 22nd year. And so hopefully, my, my hope is that over time it, it evolves and it becomes our own and it's not, it doesn't feel copied. And, and changed over from, from what you have going on. Because we have an opportunity. So many of the things that we're copying are things that um, have a really sort of interesting history here. Not, not all good, yeah. right? And so, you know, we can, we can hopefully 
change that or, 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 or tweak it. Well, speaking of not all good in recent history, well, <laughs> or mi- middle distant history, uh-huh. we were talking a bit before we, we started recording about a brilliant feature in here about Diego Armando Maradona, to give him his full name. And of course, this I've, is about... I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's apparently did some good stuff on the field of play. <laughs> now, is this, this is his... So that isn't... The latest, because he's done a sort of yeah. biogra- autobiography before, I think. That's two things. It's an excerpt from his new book, which is centered on the 86 World Cup, which for me was a formative world. I was, I was four years old, so I, I, I remember it, but I really remember it through Hero, the official film of the 86 World okay. Cup, which is, in my opinion, the most brilliant of the official films of FIFA World Cups. But it's also an original essay by his translators about what it's like to translate Diego Maradona. And it, that to me Interesting, is Interesting, to say the least. Oh my right? God, it's crazy. This is a guy who, I guess, his, his motifs, his speech styles, his personality... Absolutely as exuberant as his on-field persona. Oh, yeah. And you've got the dialect from from Buenos Aires, and and then you've got sort of the way his mind works as well, which is totally, if you've seen him play, you you have some sense of (laughs) how he thinks. Now, the reason that I joke about this being slightly contentious, certainly on this side of the pond, is, of course, he scored uh, the hand of God goal, which is what you were referring to, to knock England out of the World Cup. He cheated, in essence, by scoring a handball. Not allowed to use your hands as an outfield player in the beautiful game, of course. But he's... The classic anti-hero. And I guess that's the sort of person that you return to in Howler quite often. I cannot think of a sporting figure that the English have loved to hate so much. And, and not, as, just, as not, not just that goal or not just that figure, but that match for me holds so much of mm-hmm. what I love about the game. I mean, you have that goal, right, infamous, and minutes separating it, you have what many people consider the greatest goal ever scored. I would right? grudgingly concede it's right up Yeah, there. and so to me, you, you look at the game of soccer and you, you have utter lowness, like just base behavior, and you have the most sublime thing you can you can imagine. It's beautiful. And so, mm. well, yeah, it's... um, It's the perfect distillation. It, it's, it's, it like, it's like legend. Here's a question for you, George. If someone's not familiar with the, with the magazine, can you describe, can you boil down the visual approach that you and the team have to Howler? I don't know. I've, I've sort of said striking, inventive, but I still feel that doesn't really do justice or get to the heart of it. Can you boil it down into a word or a word or ten? <laughs> I usually start with the, the illustration and the, the photography. A lot of it's, you know, all the illustrations commissioned by us, All a lot of the photography is original. And then there's design. We have a new design firm working with us this, for this issue and, and moving forward, and I'm really excited about what they're doing. You saw the, the Maradona spread which is just a, a gold fist on this navy background to me that was something i didn't i didn't think of that was that was their idea and it, to me it was just it, well, it was genius it's, it's kind of understated and understatement is not something you'd associate with diego but it works just right doesn't right it? right and so our premise is that for a, a any magazine to survive in print right now it has to just grab you visually otherwise make a website make a you know or or publish it as a journal or a you know whatever it's a if you're going to go to the expense of printing it and making it big and heavy and beautiful, hopefully, if you agree, do it up, you know? Uh, let's talk a bit more about Howler, finally. What are some of the things uh, on the horizon, short-term, medium-term, big ambitions? I don't know, we can be as, as vainglorious and unrealistic as you like, George. What should we look forward to? And maybe I think you can tell our listeners how they can get hold of copies and find out more and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are working on issue 15 right now. It's the World Cup preview issue. Everything we do, you know, we have to think a little differently than a, a website or a, a weekly magazine. So, you know, everything we do hopefully has a shelf life. It has some value beyond the event. Uh, for instance, we've got an amazing profile of Antonio Conte. And it turns out that everyone in his hometown hates him. Uh, <laughs> and, and so we have this really fantastic profile of him that is actually about modern celebrity and what it means to be mm-hmm. loved and hated by people who 
never met you. So things like that. We have our World Cup miniseries. We have a podcast called Howler Radio coming out. We did a, a, a European Championships miniseries two years ago. An actor named Anatole Youssef. He played a gangster in Boardwalk Empire. Who I don't, I don't know if you guys watched that here, but um, very much. He's fantastic. I all of it, yeah. And and he 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 performs these for us, and they sort of look back at certain aspects of of the, the tournament. And now a magazine that certainly touches on sport and fitness and much else, but that certainly had a bumper year. Women's health. Bucking market trends, it grew consistently both in terms of print circulation and brand expansion. And it certainly profited from having a steady hand on the tiller in the form of Claire Sanderson. The editor of Women's Health joined us earlier in the year to tell us more. Well, we're very much a wellness title, although when we go to market, we say we're a lifestyle title because we are, because we have a very holistic approach to wellness. So there's everything in there from fitness, nutrition, athleisure, which is the the industry way of saying fashion sports kit. But we are wellness overall. So, and, and the reason why we're doing so well is that wellness amongst women is on a trajectory that no one could have anticipated. When I joined Women's Health, I'd just been on maternity leave with my second daughter. So I was in this little bubble with a little baby at, in Winchester, where I live, completely oblivious to what was happening in London. And when I came back after a year off... It was unrecognisable, the wellness landscape. You know, women and men are paying £25 to go to a gym class and spending more on the kit that they wear to the gym than they would for a frock to go to a wedding and not thinking twice about it, spending £100 on a pair of leggings that make you feel amazing and suck you all in, which is very important when you're a woman. You know, it's very acceptable. And I think Women's South was very lucky to be at the forefront of that and before it exploded. So I would say we're maybe... not responsible, but we we certainly we were there driving it, you know, in in the in the in the sort of background, and we were just very fortunate that our subject matter is so relevant to British women globally. In fact, because we're a huge international brand, we're in forty two countries, we're in we have thirty two editions, but Women's Health UK is doing particularly well. We are growing, which is unusual even amongst Women's Health globally. Now, tell me a bit more about some of these other facets and you've alluded to them already and actually you mentioned people spending 25 pounds to go to a gym session this sort of thing and that's obviously something that's of increasing importance i guess to women's health how savvy a broader sort of business operator do you need to be to do what what you do and we've talked often on this program before about how to manage what digital content you do and what are the other plays what are the value adds we know we do events here at monocle and our events are something that are a really important part of the women's health sort of armory as well how do you balance up the sort of as you said the 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 fundamentals which is the the printed offering with these other things which are very important in their own way aren't they oh they're hugely important and if we're going to grow as a brand we have to expand our brand extensions to survive you know we are growing in circulation but i'm not um, arrogant enough to say that that will continue you know continue for years and years so I'm very much across everything and and events are a big, big focus for us. We were half owned by a company called Rodale and then Hearst bought us recently all out. And I've noticed a significant gear change even in the last six weeks of the, the focus that's been put on us by Hearst because suddenly we have the power of Hearst, but the full power of Hearst behind us. So the full commercial team, Hearst Live, which are our events team, and everyone wants a slice of woman's health because we have a highly engaged audience. So my job now is spreading myself quite thinly and it's I'm learning 
every day. You know, you sort of you fake it till you make it a lot of time, don't you? And uh, we just have to trust your gut instinct and know your audience. And I think I do know my audience because I am the audience. Maybe I'm I'm a little bit older than our core audience now because I'm. 40 in two months which is nothing to celebrate yeah virtually exactly the same <laughs> position so yeah but I, I love health and fitness. I'm, you know, very much, even though I am a mum, I'm not defined by being a mum, which is what the woman's health reader is. So I think if you know your audience and I know what a woman's health reader wants, then I can, I can use that gut instinct across all aspects of the brand. When things are going well, as you mentioned, you've got a loyal following, there's brilliant sort of brand value ads and events that you can do. Is it easier, and again, this idea of pressure from without, not to sort of, push too far i mean is it is it all about expansion do you feel you've got some slack to just kind of consolidate and make sure you can keep doing the stuff really well that you've been doing really well in the in the first 12 months is the sort of pace of the demands whether that's on your time or on what you need to achieve is it sort of manageable well i don't have work-life balance but uh, (laughs) (laughs) because i'm a brand the brand ambassador the brand Mm. custodian they call me so I do a lot of public speaking. I'm out there representing the brand. But I do feel that we need to strike while the iron's hot. And I think now is the time to amplify women's health. As I said, when we were half-owned by Rodale, I don't feel we were amplified as much as we could have been. And I think wellness is on such an explosion, showing no sign of slowing down. I think we need to strike. The appetite is there for women's health. We are such a loved, trusted brand and everyone wants to come to our events. Our events sell out, our products sell out, you know. So whereas you see with men's health, they do um, a lot of food products, you know, the sausages and the beef jerky and stuff. You'll see more of that stuff coming out with women's health um, this year. And I and I think there's an appetite for it. People trust us. And I think the, the possibilities are endless. I'm not saying we're doing this, but there's nothing to say we can't do protein powders, um, do our own athleisure. Uh, where you know there's there's so many things that we could we could do that I know there's an appetite for with our audience. There's always an appetite for beef yes. jerky, as I understand <laughs> it. Um, what about digital space? Because that's a conversation I always like to have, whether talking to a small indie startup or you know a big player uh, from one of the big publishing houses. Is it a question of trying to frame or reframe the print content for? digital is it always a completely different conversation how divided is it and it's interesting you keep coming back to things like events which are traditional they're about meeting people and about getting out there and for me they're more they feel more like traditional media outreach than digital but maybe maybe that's just me what's that digital is it a tricky balance do you enjoy that facet of it how does it work the way digital and print or digital and everything else is run at Hearst is is separate in the sense that we have a digital team who are under a different managing director, so they have their own targets to hit. And although I work closely with the digital editor on campaigns and we do things like when we do a cover shoot, we'll send a videographer along who will do behind the scenes. So then that will be put up at our social channels to push people to buy the magazine, etc. But the actual content, it's not massively different because it's all wellness but digital is there's a lot of listicles on there you know clicky headlines etc whereas the magazine content the print content is probably a bit more considered and a bit more in depth and a bit more of a lean in experience whereas digital you dip in and out of 
And it's very much there in the service of the the print. That's still the mantra, I guess. In well, through Hearst, I mean, that's what that's what we understand, I suppose. Well, the print is the mothership of a brand, and I think yeah. you know, without print, the rest of it wouldn't be there. But I don't think the digital team would take likely to be and say <laughs> that they were there in service to print because they do an amazingly well. Our digital team, you know, they they keep every month they keep on having the best month ever, and. Um, their social reaches over a million, you know, so they're, they're doing brilliantly at amplifying the brand and getting the name Women's Health out there, and that's what we need. Another sporting publication that caught our eye in the past 12 months was the Rev Journal, a beautiful title exploring the global culture of Formula One. Here's the Rev Journal's editor-in-chief, Magnus Greaves. We're intentionally print because when you're watching the race from far away, 99% of the fans aren't at the race. So this sort of gives them a little piece of the race that, that they can hold and feel like they somehow were part of it or maybe it entices them to go next time. I think when you have a glossy magazine... It makes you think it was probably printed in one of the big cities mm. uh, as opposed to wherever the race location was. So the journal format, you know, it does a couple of things. One, I do like the easy oversized format to show off the pictures, but it also makes it feel like when you think of a newspaper, you think of the, that location. Mm. You know, so I think it suits what we're doing from a visual perspective, but also just from the the experience and feeling like it is coming to you from that race, which which uh, which it's all about. Um, and tell us about some of the devices then that you use to capture that. I guess it is. It's romance. It's glamour. Obviously, you get to go. Okay, you get to go to a lot of these places and sort of see all those dynamics firsthand. Is it about yeah, kind of getting out there? What are the kind of people that you want to talk to? Who are the the snappers and the writers that you work with? How does that all sort of come together? We select eight cities that we're going to explore out of the 21 for the season. We have a, a small but very, very amazing team. Our creative director, Tom Brown, uh, our lead writer, Paul Weaver, who used to be the Formula One correspondent for The Guardian, Helen Archer, who does all of our production. So we've been to a lot of these races previously, and we've been to a lot of these cities just for holidays or business or what have you. But we try and, and explore each of them as what makes this a Grand Prix city? What makes this a race destination? And I think sometimes you, you know, it's a 90 minute race, but if you're actually going to go, you're going to be in that city for 72 hours. And, you know, sometimes races can be a little bit boring or a bit predictable. <laughs> Controversial. We'll come to yeah, that. Yeah, we got to be careful how I say that, but it's, it's true. So I think if you're going to go to a race, you actually want to, you know, take on board everything that that city has to offer. And they're all very different. You know, sometimes you have a circuit that's on the outside of the of the town, and sometimes it's a street circuit like in Singapore or in Monaco. And every one of them is in a different country as well, so each one offers up a very different experience. So we plan it. We Our small team comes at it from a lot of different angles. The creative team goes out in advance and shoots a lot of it. Uh, we also work with a photographer by the name of Darren Heath, who travels to every single race and captures a lot of the race imagery for us as well. So, you know, then we put it all together and every issue has a different feel based on that city. And the Barcelona edition has probably weighed a little bit more to the lifestyle side, but our Monaco edition, a lot more Formula One, you know, just the history and the way it's so integrated into the city with the street circuit. 
So everyone follows a similar format, but you get a very different experience with each one. Which is kind of like the drivers, I guess, the way they talk about the circuits themselves. Some that you can sense they find more exciting almost than, they, they than others. Do. It's hugely controversial. Well, look, you've alluded to a couple of these things already, the history. We've looked sort of obliquely at this idea about, oh, it's just a bunch of cars driving around and yeah. around. Not a view I subscribe to necessarily, but... Even now, I feel that it's not as exciting as it was. Even when I was watching, I mean, one of my heroes was sort of Ayrton Senna, the late yes. great Ayrton Senna. Is the sport less exciting or is it just is it just grown up? Like any sport, really. People say, oh, it's all corporate ruled now, but it's a I, it's, massive, megabucks, billion-dollar industry. Is it, is think, it just the natural path of things, do you think? No, I think it's as exciting as it ever was. I just don't think it's presented in that way to people that aren't sort of traveling around with it. And that was the huge inspiration behind what we're doing. I think a few years ago, the marketing and the branding of Formula One became very B2B, very corporate. So it was less about the consumer advertising that was on the side of the cars in the 70s and 80s and more about big brands showing off that they have that level of technology to participate in the sport. I'm always very envious of these sports like football, basketball, even, you know, tennis and running have all these great brands that are consumer focused and they are also pushing really cool content out there, really exciting content and lifestyle culture focused content. Formula One doesn't have that happening at the moment. So that's part of the reason we decided to start this and sort of carve out that, I mean, I call it a niche, but it's what the sport's always been about. You mentioned the previous eras. That inspires us as well. And in the package that you that you have, we make a point of not just having the journal, but also uh, a limited edition art print that's inspired by the city um, and uh, a piece of merchandise as well, you know, the vintage-style racing patch that we had. That's the era that got us all excited about it. Mm. And, you know, we want to kind of have that type of experience with the sport again, and a lot of people do, which is the feedback that we're getting. Well, I was going to say, and I meant this as a compliment and not in a pejorative way, there is a sort of a nostalgic quality to it. But I think this is an interesting meeting where you can be nostalgic almost in tone, but very innovative and cutting edge in terms of, of what you're doing. And that doesn't that's not an awkward place. They don't butt up against each other. It's, it's very comfortable. That's intentionally the place that we're trying to be. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of race fans, a lot of Formula One fans almost wish that their experience could be like it was mm -hmm. when they first got into the sport. And so if we can play on that a little bit. It's good for everybody. Max, I've, I've continued to almost rudely just leaf through Please the do. Barcelona edition. And just looking, you know, there's a huge different range, even of your uh, photography, even the sort of sporting imagery, you switch the formats around, there's yes. really bold graphics. Do you start every issue with a completely blank canvas? What's the creative process like? You mentioned a few of your colleagues with whom you collaborate. Is nothing off limits? And do you sort of take the dynamism, the innovation of the sport and reflect on the pages? How does that's that process a, that's, work? That's exactly what we do. It's an incredibly exciting sport. It's a fast sport. You never know what you're going to get. And we wanted to reflect that with the, the imagery and the design and the approach. It's a race weekend. It's not just when you watch it on TV, you're seeing the race. But when you're actually there in the host city, it's a race weekend. It's a mixture of going out, of eating and drinking, of checking out the local specialties, the shops, the car culture, all the other things that are being put on for that particular weekend. And so we wanted to reflect that inside, you know, the 64 pages of this journal. And by the end of it, you should think, this is quite an incredible I'm booking, I'm booking my ticket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, want, I want to go, you know. And the reason we sell it as a collection as well, so somebody gets all eight of the editions, regardless of when they sign up, is because each city is very different, and, and we want each journal to sort of stand on its own and be interesting on its own. But at the end of the season, when you have all eight, you'd be able to look at actually quite 
what a range there is between the different experiences of the different cities. And that's all for today's programme, a special edition of Midori House, featuring some of the very best content from the stack in the past 12 months. Thanks to our producer, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and our editor, Cassie Galpin. Do get in touch with Fernando. You'll find him on fpmonocle.com. And don't forget to tune in to another special edition of Midori House at the same time tomorrow. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Listening.